How is everybody? Awesome. <laughs> Arsenio Hall sitting over here. That's good. Um, everyone remembers Arsenio Hall, right? Okay. All right. All of you over the age of 40 remember Arsenio Hall. Okay. So we are in the book of Revelation. Um, if you have not been here, uh, this is a pretty, um, it's a pretty dense book of the Bible. A lot of people are kind of afraid to get into this book of the Bible and, and, um, for some reasons that are kind of understandable, it takes a lot of work, it takes a lot of thought, it takes a lot of study. And um, in my opinion, the hardest part about this book of the Bible is the chronology, which we're about to get into. Kind of the order of events and breaking down, like how does the last seven years of human history, how does that play out? What does that look like? And so what I'm gonna start doing every single week, if you've been here, uh, you've covered this with us. If you're just now jumping in, you can easily go back and you can kind of catch up. But what I'm going to start doing every single week is I'm going, to, I'm going to give kind of a brief recap. And when I say brief, I mean real brief, like what was the main point of each chapter that we've done and kind of a hopes that we can keep up with the chronology a little bit better, okay? Because it does take some work and it can get a little confusing. Now, if you've never been here, this is what we do. We go through whole books of the Bible. We go through line by line, word by word. And again, I think, and, and I've gotten a lot of people tell me this so far, with Revelation, so far, I think we've done okay with it as far as a lot of people have come up and said, I can, I can understand it, I, I'm getting it, I, 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 I see the point and I see the practical takeaways and that's our hope, okay? Now, as we get into even deeper waters this week, we're gonna start coming across stuff that, that we can disagree on and that's okay. And I will hopefully show you from here on out multiple perspectives on maybe certain things like the rapture, which I don't believe in a traditional rapture. I had someone this week tell me that they were thinking about leaving the church. Now, let me stop there for a second. If you're going to leave this church, leave over something that's a major and something that's salvific, not over something stupid like rapture, right? Don't leave over something dumb. So if you're going to leave a church over something that dumb, you're never going to find a church you like because you're always going to find something that you don't like, right? Because you're dealing with people, right? So that's just this thing, right? So anyways, every week, I'm going to show you different ideas, different perspectives, and I'm going to say, I land here. But if you land here, that's fine. That's okay. We can agree to disagree on minor issues in the book of Revelation. Okay, so we're going to keep working through it. And I hope to, to just teach you more and more about this and, and kind of let this make a little bit more sense. All right? So if you haven't been here, the first three chapters are very, very easy. And when I say very easy, it takes little work. It takes uh, just a little bit of reading, a little bit of meditation. But it's, it's pretty easy to grasp the first three chapters these seven letters that were written to these seven churches. Chapter four gets a little bit more complicated, but not too bad, right? That's where John is taken up into heaven. He's kind of transported spiritually. We get to see the command center, the throne room of God. A lot of symbolism there, but again, with a little bit of work, we kind of can break that down and it makes a lot of sense to us. In chapter five, we're still in the throne room. And we see that John zooms in and God is holding a scroll in his hand. And this scroll is going to be given to Jesus Christ. And we talked about that the scroll represents the future. It represents the judgment of mankind, the end of the universe, the rebirth of the universe. All of these things are contained in this scroll. Now, what we're going to talk about this week is the scroll is going to be opened. The seals that are on the scroll are going to be broken, and slowly, all the different things that are going to take place during the great tribulation, the last seven years of humanity, we're going to see them unfold from this scroll, OK? 
okay? That's what we're going to be talking about today. We'll cover six of the seven seals that are holding this scroll together, all right? So again, you should have notes, handouts in front of you. I, I encourage you, keep those. Stick them somewhere. Put them in your Bible. Put them in a folder, something, so you can have those for later. They will help you, okay? All the information will be on the screens around you, and, and so if something's not in the notes, it will be on the screens, and you can take that down if you need to. If you have a smartphone, the Experience Community app, all the notes and all the sermons are on there. Very, very easy to keep up with that. And uh, if you have your Bible, we're in the very last book of the Bible. We're in the sixth chapter, okay? And so we're going to get into some pretty heavy stuff, uh, a little bit of kind of some scary stuff, but it's okay, all right? We're going to work through it, and we'll get a good understanding, all right? Okay, I'm going to pray, and and my comment about the rapture is the sassiest I'm going to get today. So it's all good, right? It's all, we're all all good after that. So everyone's safe, okay? All right. Lord Jesus, God, we love you. I thank you so much for this church, God. I, I love these people with, with everything inside me, God. And um, I know that if I love them, Lord, you love them in a way that I can't even understand. And I thank you for that. God, I pray, Lord, that you touch our hearts today. I pray that you open up our minds today. I pray that we can understand. I pray, God, that we're not afraid of this book, but we're encouraged and we're educated by it and we're blessed by it. Father, we pray for every church in our city. <clears throat> we pray for every nonprofit in our city. We pray for the lost of our city, God, that we can be the light to them and show them the love of Christ. And we pray, God, that our future is in your hands, Lord. That's the only place it can be trusted. We love you and we thank you and we lift you up, God, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm gonna read a little bit. I'm gonna go back and break it down, okay? John says, then I saw the lamb, that's Jesus, open up one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say, with a voice like thunder, come. I looked and there was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, a crown was given to him, and he went out as a conqueror in order to conquer. When he opened up the second seal, I heard the voice of the second living creature say, come. Then another horse went out, a fiery red one, and its rider was allowed to take peace from the earth so that people would slaughter one another, and a large sword was given to him. When he opened the third seal, I heard the voice of the living creature say, come. And I looked, and there was a black horse. Its rider held a set of scales in his hand. Then I heard something like a voice from among the four living creatures say, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius but do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and there was a pale green horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades was following after him. They were given the authority over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, by famine, by plague, and by the wild animals of the earth. Now, if you were with me during the intro of Revelation, we talked about apocalyptic writing. The book of Revelation is apocalyptic writing. One of the trademarks of apocalyptic writing is that things get bad, 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 and then something happens and they get better. Now, this is the part in Revelation where it starts to get bad. A lot of people view chapters six through 16 as being harsh, 
is God being this vengeful kind of mean God. And that's not what he's doing. If we really study the book of Revelation with an open mind, we see that God is not being harsh, God is being gracious. He is doing everything he can to get mankind to notice him and to turn to him. Go back to Revelation chapter three, where it says, I punish people, I rebuke people because I love them, because I'm trying to get their attention. So another problem with these chapters is the symbolism, of course, and the order by which these events take place. In my opinion, that's the most complicated part. And how we view the order of events will determine how we think about the end of time. Whether you're a pre-tribulation rapture person, which means Jesus comes back before the seven years, a mid-tribulation, three and a half years, or post, and that's where I land, post, that Jesus comes back after the seven years. And again, I'll give you things that I see as evidence for this. You may not agree with that, and that is perfectly fine, okay? So the events we're going to be talking about are the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. Each set has seven events in it, and they're divided up into three parts. The first four are one part, five and six are one part, and then seven stands alone. The last three events in each seven is called a woe. That means a curse of God, something supernatural that is a curse from God. Now, throughout the seals, trumpets, and bowls, and I'll show you a diagram here in a second, there will be these insertions of the state of the church. So as these things are going on, there's a break every once in a while that says, and this is what's going on with the church. This is what's going on with the followers of God. Now, here's where it gets pretty intense. At the very last part of that passage I read, it said that they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill. That means that 25% of the earth's population, if that were to happen right now, it's about 1.75 billion people will die from human affliction, from wars, from famines, from things like that. Now, of that 75% that's left, during the trumpets, another 33% of humanity will die because of natural and environmental disasters. And then the last set of events, the bowls, that's when God's wrath is going to be poured out, and that's when humanity and time as we know it comes to an end, okay? Now, there's a couple of different ways we can view these events. And again, this sounds complicated, but I promise you it's not. You don't need to worry about it too much. Some people look at them as happening one after the other. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. Some people believe these are simultaneous events, that they all happen at the same time. So there's seven events that, that all happen kind of simultaneously. The third option is kind of a blending of the two, and this is where I land. And let me show you how this plays out, okay? There are six events. These are the seals. Then there is a break, chapter 7. That's what we'll do next week. And it talks about the state of the church. And then the next six events happen, the trumpets. And then there's another break where it talks about the state of the church. There's yet another break before the bowls. And then the seventh event all happens at the same time. So it goes like this, and there's no symbolism in this. Six, 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 and then the seventh event is all this huge cataclysmic earthquake. It's the same event, okay? That's what I believe in my studies and with the research that I've done. I believe this is the order of these events, okay? If you don't, again, that's perfectly fine. 
Now, the four living creatures, if you were here for chapters four and five, the four living creatures that surround the throne and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, who is to come. These four living creatures summon the four horses of the apocalypse. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard that term before, the four horses of the apocalypse. Maybe if you're a Metallica or a Megadeth fan or something like that. But anyways, these four horses of the apocalypse are called, <laughs> no one laughed last night either. So it's because you guys only listen to wholesome music. That's good. So these four living creatures break these seals and it unleashes these horses with these riders. John says their voice is like thunder when they say, come, right? It's startling, it's loud, it's huge, and it summons these riders and their horses. Now the first seal is broken and the living creature that looks like a lion from chapter four summons the white horse and the rider. He records that the rider held a bow and was wearing a crown, and he was unleashed on the earth to conquer. So the first horse symbolizes military conquest. The crown symbolizes that they will be victorious, and the white does not symbolize purity like it has in the past. The white symbolizes peace. It's a false peace, though. These are treaties that are made by people who intend to inflict war but they are signing peace treaties, they're being peaceful. It's this false sense of peace, okay? That's what the white symbolizes. Some people think this white horse is Jesus. That makes absolutely no sense. Though a lot of commentaries actually say that. They believe it's Jesus and that this is Christianity conquering the earth. And again, that makes no sense. It's very highly unlikely. The bow with no arrows could possibly mean that this conquest is not brute force. It's not fighting, it's intimidation. It's political tactics, it's scaring people. It's the threats of war. It's, it's, it's causing other people to kind of relent even though nothing has happened. It's this intimidation factor. Many scholars also believe that this first horse represents the one world order, a bunch of people coming under one nation or one leader and that they're all starting to unite under kind of one body. Okay? There's going to be this false sense of peace and tranquility on earth. The second horse, look at this, I even made it fiery red up here in my PowerPoint. That was like an extra eight seconds that I, that I put in for you guys this week. The creature, thanks, the creature like an ox unleashes the horse and the rider that symbolize warfare. It says that this rider has the ability to take peace from the earth so people will slaughter one another fighting, warfare. Of course, the red can symbolize bloodshed. That makes sense. The red can also symbolize the fire from weapons in battle. So the brief peace that came with the first horse is gone with the second horse, and we have warfare, all right? Many believe this can also represent internal strife. So not international fighting, but internal fighting, like civil wars, rebellions, revolutions, and the large sword that was given to this rider symbolizes that the bloodshed is gonna be on a large scale. It's gonna be a big deal. It's gonna be a lot of fighting, a lot of bloodshed, a lot of warring. The next horse that is called, the creature like a human summons the black horse. Now this black horse isn't carrying a weapon, it's carrying scales, the rider. The scales represent famine, that's what the third horse represents, famine, and possibly economic collapse. Now it makes sense, wherever there's warfare, 
it leads to starvation. It leads to the collapse of the countries that lose in warfare. Think of all the refugees right now on earth. Think of all the warring nations. Think about the destruction of cities. For instance, and I'm not trying to get political with you guys, but when radical Islam goes into a, a city and they overtake it, they don't just overtake it. They burn the libraries. They destroy any kind of uh, temples or churches or synagogues. They destroy any kind of, uh, of note of history. They completely obliterate the area and leave those people in a destitute, awful position. That's what they do. Think about that. So it's, it's famine, it's economic collapse is what this third horse represents. Now, the reason why it's holding scales is that insinuates that food is going to have to be rationed or that the price of food is going to be so heavily inflated that people will unethically sell food to each other at these hyperinflated costs and they will withhold food unethically from needy people. Now, it's interesting. The reason why it mentions wheat and grain is those things that, are, that, that most people in most countries use for kind of common food, breads and things like that, those things will be in short supply, but the finer foods, like oils and wines, like it says, the rich will still be able to indulge in the finer things. Listen to this. The rich will still indulge in the finer things while average people and poor people won't even be able to get a hold of normal food to stay alive. There will be this huge chasm between the rich and powerful and those who need to get by, the average people and the poor people, okay? There will be famine, there will be economic collapse. The fourth horse, which is probably the most famous, the creature like an eagle unleashes the horse and the rider that is kind of a greenish gray color, similar to a corpse. Now this rider's name is death, and it says that hell followed, or Hades, or the grave followed. Now again, it makes sense. Wherever there's conquest, Wherever there's war, wherever there's economic collapse and famine, there is death. Makes perfect sense. The pale green can also symbolize what is happening to the earth at this time, that the vegetation has been ruined by the previous horses and riders, that maybe crops have failed, that we're not only destroying people, we're destroying the environment around us as well by all this warfare. Now at this time, it says that 25% of the world's population dies during this fourth seal. The fact that hell follows, that's what it says, Hades follows, may indicate that a large number of those people who have died were not saved. They didn't have a relationship with Christ. Now, if you go back to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 14, it talks about this in verbatim. It says it very, very vividly, and it mentions that we cannot undo this process, but I believe many Christians will be present during this process to console those who are grieving, share the gospel with people, and a lot of people will turn to Christ during this time. That's what I personally believe, okay? When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood. So they were each given a white robe, and they were told to rest for a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been killed. 
So the fifth seal represents an intensification of Christian persecution. Now, ever since Christianity has been a religion, it has been persecuted. Ever since it's been, somewhere in the world, people have been persecuting Christianity ever since it has existed. But the fifth seal shows that it's gonna become a global thing. It's gonna happen all around the world and it's gonna get much, much worse before the end comes. Now, this scene that we just read, this is all of the martyrs, people who have died for Jesus' name throughout all of human history. So all the people who have died for the name of God, right, to follow God, all these people are in this scene, including the people who are murdered during the seven years of the Great Tribulation. Now, here's the thing. Jesus says that we must be willing to take up our cross. Now, we completely manipulate and take that text out of context. We say, well, my job sucks, but I'm taking up my cross, right? You know, like, it's really rough to be around my, my, my in-laws, but I'm, I'm picking up my cross. That's not what that means. When Jesus said, take up your cross, he meant that every single Christian has to be willing to die for their faith. Now, I know we're not under persecution in the United States. Getting unfriended on Facebook is not persecution, right? I know that we're not in persecution in the United States, but even we need to be in a mindset to where if it came, and if they threatened to kill us for our faith, that we have to be ready to die for our faith. When Paul took up his cross, he had his head cut off. When Peter took up his cross, he was actually nailed to a cross upside down. When Bartholomew, he was one of the 12 disciples, took on his cross, he was bludgeoned to death. These people took up their cross literally. When Stephen took up his cross, the first one ever martyred for Jesus' name, he was stoned to death in the street. And so when it says take up, it, take up your cross, it means literally. You must be willing to take up your cross. And so the martyrs called out from under the altar, the souls of the persecuted believers from out all time, right, including the future that's going to happen, the souls are symbolically under an altar in heaven. Now, why? Why would they do that? Well, in the Old Testament, the blood of the sacrifice was put under the altar. These people's blood had been shed for Jesus Christ, and so God has put their blood, their souls, if you will, in a, in a specific kind of honored place. And as these people who have died for Jesus, who wear these white robes, they petition God and they say, holy and true Lord, when are you going to judge those who live on the earth and when are you going to avenge our blood? Now we know that they're not looking for revenge. They're looking for justice, not revenge. How do we know that? Because they're wearing white robes of purity. Their hearts are in the right place. They love justice. They're not out for revenge. There's a difference. Now, the martyrs who ask how long it's going to take, the answer is not until all people during the Great Tribulation have either had the opportunity to become Christians or all Christians are martyred off during that time. This is going to sound super depressing. There's a lot of Revelation scholars who don't believe in a rapture, but they believe all Christians will eventually be martyred during that seven years, that that's how we're all going to be taken up, is we're all going to be killed during that time. Now, here's what Jesus says about the second coming. He was asked in Matthew 24, when are you going to come back? And Jesus said, I will not return until every single nation on earth has had the opportunity to become a follower, right? And then he says, I will come back. So obviously that hasn't happened yet. We're still waiting for that time when all people on earth will have the opportunity. 
Now, here comes one of my first problems with the pre-tribulation rapture. If one believes that the fifth seal that we just talked about takes place during the seven years of tribulation, I believe that because it says it, that people are being added during the great tribulation. The idea that people are all Christians are raptured out before that doesn't make any sense. It contradicts the text. If no Christians are present during the seven years of tribulation, who teaches people the gospel? And who's being murdered for the gospel? It doesn't make any sense. Now, I know what you scholars are saying out there. What about 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where Paul says, we'll be met up with him in the sky. We'll be taken up. That's where the word rapture comes from. Listen, I can take an hour and tell you that is not what Paul meant at all, taken way out of context. But if you want to study up on that, if that's something you get hung up on, N.T. Wright, one of the most amazing theologians on planet Earth right now, wrote an article called Farewell to the Rapture that takes 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, breaks it down, and it's, it's basically explaining that Paul did not mean the second coming of Christ at all when he was talking about that passage, okay? So again, if you want to research that, it's a really, really great article. It's short. You can Google it. Really, really good, okay? All right, next part. Then I saw him open the sixth seal, a violent earthquake occurred. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of hair. The entire moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its unripe figs when shaken by a high wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was moved from its place. So now we take it up a notch. Now God is kind of getting involved in a much bigger way. The first five seals were acts of humans. God is in control. He's the one that unleashes these horses to go out, but it's human wars, it's human famine, it's human corruption and things like that. The sixth seal, though, are acts of God that affect not only people, it's actually going to affect the earth itself. The sky, the land, and the waters are going to be changed. They're going to be affected. This is the first of five references in Revelation to an earthquake. And it says the sun was turned to black. That doesn't literally mean that that big star in the sky is going to turn black. It means that there's so many volcanic eruptions on planet Earth that we're going to look up and it's going to be so covered with, with uh, volcanic ash that it's going to look like the sun is black. When it says the moon was turned to blood, that doesn't literally mean that that big rock in the sky around our Earth is going to turn to a big glob of blood. That's not what it means. Right? That would be quite freaky. So that's not what that means. What it means is, is at night during the full moon, because of all the volcanic ash, just like the sun, it appears to be red. It's covered up. Now, the prophet Joel in the Old Testament, about 800 years before John wrote this, predicts this verbatim. The same guy that predicted the Holy Spirit coming also predicted this, right? The sixth seal, okay? Now, when it says the stars of heaven fall to the earth... That's probably not referring to stars because that's impossible. If a star fell to earth, we would just be incinerated instantly, right? So it can't mean that. Now, we call meteorites shooting stars. And so more than likely, the stars falling to the earth are meteorites. There's going to be a meteorite shower that hits the earth, and it's going to change the geology of the earth. Now, when John says the sky was split like a scroll, this is a little harder to understand but what a lot of scholars believe is he is basically talking about that the universe 
is starting to unravel. All the things that we thought were secure, all the things that we thought were permanent were starting to come to an end. They were starting to unfold. And eventually we're going to see that God is going to erase the entire universe and he's going to build a new one. But here's the thing to know. It says that every mountain and every island will be moved from its place before Jesus comes back. There will be a huge cataclysmic earthquake, things happening on earth that will change the geology of the earth. Now, some people see this as symbolic, right? It's just symbolism. It's symbolism of some earth-shattering thing happening, right? Of, of some politician that we don't want being elected getting reelected or some, oh my gosh, it's the sun turning to black. No, that's not what it is. Some people see it as literal. One day we're going to walk out and we're going to literally see oh, the moon turn to blood and we know Jesus is coming back. Some people see it as way literal. And then some people see this is all the events that have taken place between the time Jesus was born to the time Jesus returns, the last 2,000 years that these things have been taking place. Now, the truth is probably a mixture of all those things. There is symbolism, there is some literalism, and there are cataclysmic things that have happened from the birth of Jesus to whenever he comes back. So it's probably a blending of all three of these things, okay? Now, here comes the practical side of all this. Then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb, because the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So the last two verses of chapter six show us how humanity is going to respond to these cataclysmic events. There's a couple of different groups of people mentioned which kind of encompasses all people. The rich, the powerful, the slaves, the free, the average people, all people are affected. No one has an excuse and no one is exempt from the judgment of God. Everyone will be held accountable. Everyone will have to go through these things. No one is, is not affected by these things. So what are their responses? The first response humanity has to this global disturbance is self-preservation. They take care of themselves. Hiding in the rocks is probably a metaphorical saying for people being terrified, right? And putting themselves first. Our natural, you and I, our natural response to any adversity is selfishness, always. That's what we do, right? It's what we do as little kids. It's what we do, unfortunately, as adults. That's our natural response. But here's the thing as Christians. We have a supernatural thing inside of us. So our response to adversity should not be the natural response. It should be the supernatural response. So here's the thing. As Christians, we are to war against self-preservation. The world says, look out for yourself, and that's how you're going to su succeed. Self-preservation is a catalyst to be destroyed, not to save yourself from destruction. So as Christians, we put God first. We put people first, we put our spouse first, our children first, we put our neighbor first. That's why Jesus said the first will be last and the last will be first because Jesus was going against the natural culture of the world and saying, don't put yourself first. That's how you get destroyed. Put God and others first and that's how you'll be preserved. That's how you'll be taken care of. So the first response is self-preservation. 
The second response of humanity is blame God. It's God's fault, right? Some people believe that these passages are these people repenting, and it is not that at all. This is the outrage and blame of people because they believe God is wrong and they deserve better. God, you're wrong. I deserve better than this. Now, a positive spin on this is I believe during this time, a lot of people will accept Christ. A lot of people will humble themselves. They will see these cataclysmic events going on, God shaking the earth, and they will give their life to Christ. So there's this very haunting phrase at the end of this chapter. The people ask, who is able to stand? And this is a rhetorical question, right? The answer to this rhetorical question of who can stand is nobody. The only people that will escape the wrath of God, the anger of God, are those that have a relationship with God. We are promised not to experience God's wrath. We may experience humanity's wrath, but we're not going to experience God's wrath. So chapter 6, just like all of the book of Revelation, is a wake-up call. God is going to shake the earth, literally. He's going to hit it with meteorites. He's going to change the geology and the geography of the earth. He's going to disrupt the sky, the land, the sea, everything, in hopes that people will turn their life around. That's how much he loves us, to move the entire universe for us. But some of us don't recognize it. And here's why. The reason why we don't recognize it is self-preservation, thinking about ourselves first, ensures that God will always be elusive in your life. You know the reason why a lot of you have never felt God? Because you're on Facebook three hours a day. You know why you've never heard God? Because you're listening and watching Netflix six hours a day. We're so distracted. Not only are we so distracted, we have so much unrepentant sin between us and God that his voice can't cut through all that crap. Why don't we hear or feel him? Because we're distracted and we're only thinking about ourselves. That's why. God can't work with people who only think about themselves. Not only are we to carry our cross, be willing to die for our faith, we are to be dependent on Jesus for our daily bread. You know what that means? You need to pray every single day. Corey, every day? You check your flipping Instagram every day? You can pray every day. You check the sports scores every day? You can pray every day. You somehow make it to work on time, you can carve out 10 minutes to pray. Give us today our daily bread, not our weekly bread, not our monthly bread, which is how often you guys come to church once a month. Not that. Jesus says, pray like this. Give us today our daily bread. Not only though are we to carry our cross and get our daily bread, but we are to make sacrifices for the greater good of humanity. That means if God has blessed us financially, give some of it away. You socialist, I'm not a socialist, I'm a Christian. And when I see other people who need things and I have enough, I need to give some of it. Not because the government tells me, but because God himself told me. Because I am supposed to give out of the goodness of my heart. 
that we are to give and help mankind and advance the kingdom. But if we only think about us, you will never hear the voice of God. You will never feel the Holy Spirit. You can't be filled of the Holy Spirit if you're full of yourself. It's no wonder we don't recognize the things of God. The other reason why we don't recognize the things of God is we don't own up to our own mistakes. Guys, listen. I know a lot of you have been abused, and I am so sorry, but that is not your identity. I know a lot of you have been hurt. I've been hurt. I have a dad that hasn't talked to me for 13 of my 39 years on planet Earth. I understand what it's like to be hurt. I understand what it's like to be taken advantage of. I understand scars. I understand bitterness. I've been there. I understand depression and anxiety. But I also know this. The Holy Spirit is bigger than those things. God is bigger than those things. But some of you don't believe that. You're still holding on to the offenses and the hurts of the past. And God says, that's not where I want you to hang out. But we have to own what we've done. Let me be very blunt and honest with you guys in here. Just because your father cheated on your mother doesn't give you the right to cheat on your wife. Just because your father was a porn addict doesn't mean you have to be a porn addict. Just because your parents were divorced doesn't mean you have to be divorced. Just because you've been abused doesn't mean you have to abuse people. There is never an excuse to sin. And when we do something wrong, when we sin, we have to take responsibility for our actions. It's not my father's fault that I sin, it's my fault that I sin. And when I stand before Jesus Christ, he's not going to say, well, Corey, all these awful things were done to you. It's okay. I have to take responsibility because the Holy Spirit that God has given me is bigger than anything that has happened to me. It is bigger than my excuses. I have to own up with it. Do you know why a lot of us are never used by God? Because we won't take responsibility for our actions. We have to understand that the actions that we do and the consequences we receive, that's our problem. That's our fault. And the only way for those things to be alleviated is to be humble and to go in front of God and say, God, it's not your fault. It's not their fault. It's my fault. It's not the government's fault. It's not the economy's fault. It's my fault. It's my fault. Remember when all these kids were like, you need to pay back my student debts? I didn't take out your student debts. I took out my own and I paid for my own. That's your problem. I didn't do that to you. You did that to you. And you need to pay those things. I know that just offended a lot of you, right? Where in the world did we get off thinking we could take off debt and put it on someone else? No, no, no. Our choices are our choices. And we have to own those things. And it is only when we humble ourselves and say, God, it's my fault. That's when God says, okay, I can work with that. I can work with that humility. That person is owning their mistakes. Okay, I can do something with you. Uh, you will listen. You will humble yourself. And it's only when we own our mistakes that we find grace and we find the ability to be reconciled with God. And the Bible says we are more than overcomers. But Corey, you don't know what's happened to me. I don't, but God does, and he's bigger. He's bigger. If you look around this room, we all have scars. We have all been damaged. But if we will lean on Christ, he shows us grace. And the Bible says, not, not just that we're overcomers, we are more than overcomers of those things. God's grace is sufficient. But I don't think we, I don't think we fully believe that all the time. So this question at the end of chapter 6, who is able to stand? 
Do you know who's able to stand? Those who put God first, those who put others first, and those who take responsibility for their actions. Who can stand? You can stand. I can stand as long as I stand on Jesus Christ, as long as I put others before me, as long as I am humble enough to say, God, forgive me. It's not anyone else's fault. It's my fault. I did it. I did it. I'm the one that's responsible. God, help me. Who can stand? And listen, I'm not just talking about salvation, guys. If you want your marriage to stand, you got to put God first. And then you got to put your spouse second. And then you got to put your kids third. And then you. And that's how your marriage will stand. How will your job stand? How will your employment stand? Put God first. Trust him with your finances. Speak with, to others with kindness and respect. Work hard. Do your job. You'll stand. You'll be fine. And if that job goes away, God will give you a better one. How do we stand with relationships? Put God first, others second. Be humble when we've made mistakes. Ask not only for God's forgiveness, but ask for other people's forgiveness. That's how you'll stand. And how will we stand for eternity? How will we escape God's wrath? By putting him first. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and all other things will be added to you. Do you know Jesus even tells us how to party in the Bible? Did you know that? In the Gospels, Jesus says, if you go to a party, he says, here's, let me, let me tell you how to go to a party and be successful. Jesus says, when you go to a party, don't sit right next to the host. Don't walk into the banquet room and take like the VIP seat. Don't do that. Don't put yourself first. Because Jesus says, if you do that, and that seat's already taken, the host is going to have to tell you to go sit in the back and you're going to look stupid. So you know what Jesus says? When you walk into a party, go sit down in the low end. Humble yourself and sit way back in the back. And Jesus says at that point, if the host asks you to get up and come forward, you're honored in front of all people. The moral of the story is be humble and the host honors us. Put God and others first and the host will honor us in front of all people. Who's able to stand? I'm able to stand. You're able to stand. All of us who will humble ourselves and put God and others first, that's how you're able to stand. For those of you who've been hurt, I'm sorry. I truly am. I hear stories in my office that are awful, awful stories. But it is not, it is not God's intention for you to find your identity in your scars. It is God's intention for you to find your identity in his healing. That's his goal. Would you bow your heads with me, please? I say this a lot, but I mean it with all sincerity. I, I don't know where most of you are. I don't know what's been done to you. I don't know if your husband has left or your relationships are, are broken with your family. I don't know if you've made awful mistakes or if awful mistakes have been made to you. I don't know. But I can say with all confidence in my heart that the Holy Spirit is bigger than all of those things. I also want to tell you that God loves you. 
The same God that's going to shake the earth to get people's attention. How do we know that God loves us? God gave his only son to die on a cross for us while we were sinners. All the way around you is communion. Everyone is welcome to take communion as long as you ask Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins, as long as you will humble yourself and say, God, I take responsibility. I was wrong. And when we do that, when we take responsibility for our wrongs, for our, our bad choices, that's when God gives us grace. And that's when we can start to overcome. When we start forgiving those, what did Jesus say? Forgive us our trespasses as we, as we trespass, as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. When we start to ask for, for the forgiveness of others, when we start to forgive other people who have hurt us, we find freedom, we find healing. There's communion all the way around you, and all of you are welcome to take that, but you have to humble yourself. Also up here to my right, your left, is Dave. He's wearing the experience shirt. If you're either not a Christian and you have questions, or maybe you're a, a new Christian, or maybe you're, you don't know what to do, you're just on the fence about all this, if you want to come up and talk to Dave, he'd love to talk to you. Any questions you may have, and he can point you in the right direction. There's also men and women up here to pray with you. If you need prayer for anything, anything at all, come up here and let these people pray with you. Last thing I want to say to you. I strongly believe that a lot of you have started to believe a lie. That you can never overcome the things that you've done or the things that have been done to you. I want to tell you, and you're going to think I'm a charismatic nut, but that's a lie from Satan. It's not the truth. Jesus Christ came. He came from a bloodline of people who committed incest and rape and murder. And the bloodline of the, of the Messiah, the Savior, ran right through those things. I don't care who has hurt you. I don't care how bad the hurt was. God can heal the wounds. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how dark of a sin that you've committed. I have personally known murderers and rapists. I've known child pornographers who have been forgiven by God. God can go to deep depths and you can overcome those sins. You can overcome that guilt and shame. I give you my word but you've got to humble yourself. You've got to say it was me. Forgive me. And God will give you, the Bible says, grace upon grace. Father, I love you. For every man, child, woman in this room, God, I just pray, Lord, that they feel your spirit. I pray that we can empty ourselves of ourselves and that you can fill us up, God. For those of us with scars, Lord, God, Lord, let those start to heal. For those of us with sins, God, that are unrepentant, Lord, let us be repentant. Let us fall at your feet, God, and just seek your grace. Lord, we love you. We praise you, God. I love, 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 love these people. And if I love them, Lord, I know you love them in a way that is just indescribable. I pray, God, that they feel your love. Just like they hear my voice right now. 
I pray, God, that they can feel you. Lord, we love you and we praise you, God. Be with my brothers and sisters till we meet again. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you guys. You're welcome to help yourself.